As always, it's a privilege to be able to be here with you this morning, whether you're on our Canandaigua campus, watching online, or watching throughout the week. Uh, We are in this series uh, as we're exploring through the book of James, calling it Faith Works. And we finished the last chapter, first chapter of James uh, last week. And in the first chapter of James, we've already come to understand this. That genuine Christianity is not merely a matter of talk, but demonstrates itself through appropriate Christ-like action. And that's what James is writing to us about. He's writing about what does Christianity and action look like? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? In fact, James throughout this book will share that a declaration of faith without any sign of the transformational power of the Holy Spirit in one's life is useless. In other words, what we're doing is not merely talking about God. We're, we're experiencing God. We're walking with God. We're, we're allowing the very spirit of God to transform us and use us to share his love and message with those around us. One word for which the closing verses of chapter 1 have presented us with is not found at the beginning of chapter 2. In fact, it's not found anywhere else in the book of James. And that's just word religion. Last week we looked at genuine religion and and James challenges us to live out of genuine religion. And and as we jump into chapter 2, we find that that although it's not there as far as the word itself, religion, that the rest of the book of James is going to describe what genuine religion really is all about. Now I've heard people say, I said this last week, that that people will say, well, you know, Christianity is, is not a religion, it's a relationship. And the answer is yes. It's both. It's a relationship. We enter into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but a religion is the specific ways that a heart relationship with God is expressed in a believer's life. And so, yes, we enter into this relationship, but what what comes out of that relationship, what flows through our life, is the expression of our religion. What we truly believe and say we believe is lived out practically in our day-to-day living. And so what does James do in the first part of chapter 2? He uses a very vivid example to talk about the fact that we as followers of God should really reflect God's heart to all people, which means we should avoid partiality. Now what's partiality? Partiality is treating people in different ways according to their outward appearance, worldly advantages, or any sort of personal preference. So James is going to write against partiality, about loving people, all people, with the very precious love of Jesus Christ. We're going to start with the very first verse of chapter 2. Listen to what James writes. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality as you hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now let me say this, that, that, that partiality is a very subtle sin. Partiality reveals, really, when you think about it, the values of the, of, of the world, not the kingdom of Christ. And God shows no favoritism. And we as his followers shouldn't as well. We, we should love all people equally with the love of Christ. And James mentions the Lord of glory. And I'm glad he does, because I have to be honest with you. I don't know about you and your faith journey, but that word glory, it was a word that I would hear often in church. You know, every once in a while, there'd be somebody who would say, oh, glory. And I thought, I don't really know what they're talking about. Like, like it, it's, it's a biblical word, but it was a word for many, many years. I, I really didn't totally grasp. And for us to really understand, I want to take us back to the Old Testament. 
Exodus chapter 33. Here's Moses. And Moses is so troubled by, by Israel's history. He's troubled by their future. He's called to lead them, and he's not really sure of his ability or his willingness to do so. Ever been there? God calls you to something. And so he's, he's not sure he can, and he's not sure he really wants to. And so he begs God. He, goes, he says, show me your glory, I pray. Show me your glory, I pray. In response, the Lord, first of all, insists that he does lead his people. And then secondly, God makes his goodness pass before Moses and proclaims his name. What's very interesting in this account is that the Lord's name is not just a statement of who he is, but what he is. That, that it summarizes the Lord's character and attributes. So when Moses asked to see the Lord's glory, the Lord in effect answered by saying, you will certainly see my glory and I will come to you myself, reveal my essential goodness and spell out my very nature to you. So glory, glory really when you think about it, then is shorthand for the personal presence of the Lord and all his goodness and in the fullness of his revealed character. So when we speak of the glory of God, we're talking about the fact that God is present and that a part of his character is being expressed, shown to us. So the Lord Jesus Christ is God's glory. For he came among us in all his goodness and in the full revelation of his person. And Jesus introduces, James introduces our faith in Jesus Christ, that it's the glory of the Lord. To emphasize our need to share the Lord's glory, to share in his character, to share in his love, to share in his mission, and express that to those around us. Almost every week, I, I talk about the fact that we gather here weekly on Sunday morning to put the glory of the Lord on display. So what am I talking about? We're putting his goodness on display. We're, we're, we're sharing his love. We're, we're, we're on mission with him. And, and so when we hear testimonies or when we're praying together or singing praise songs or studying God's word, we're putting God's glory on display because it's a reflection of who he is. And God... And his very nature shows no partiality, and neither should we. So James continues his teaching with examples of how Christians can sometimes tend to treat two kinds of people. The illustration's hypothetical, but it's one that's probable and practical. Look at James 2, 2 through 4 with me. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabbily clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I mean, James calls it sin right off the bat, evil thoughts, this judgment that's happening here. This, this, and what, what's the judgment? Well, this person who comes in, fine clothing, dressed well, you know, wearing all the blanks, says, hey, you, you, must, you must be somebody special. Let me put you in a seat of honor. And another person comes in, and they're maybe shabby, dressed. And remember, he's not writing this in 2022. He's writing this about 2,000 years ago. And if you were poor, you were poor. You have nothing. And that person comes in, and the person says, well, you don't really have much, so I'm sure you don't mind standing. I'm sure you don't mind sort of sitting at my feet. And you think about that. that. That's the image that James looks at. And he says, he says, and you've done this in your churches. That's why he's writing it. 
He's saying you're doing it out of judgment and evil thoughts. He says you shouldn't show that type of partiality. Now let me really be clear here because not all partiality is wrong. And so we don't want to go to the far extreme. It's important to be clear that it would not be wrong, for example, to offer the last remaining seat to an aged person or someone with physical limitations and asking a younger person and someone without limitations, say, hey, do you mind giving up your seat so this person can sit here? That's not wrong. Are we all in agreement about that? That's actually showing love. But James is talking about sort of the selfishness, this, this, this holier-than-thou type of attitude that, that was beginning to, to happen within the church. And he's like, that's not God's heart, and therefore it shouldn't be ours either. It's not wrong to show respect to others. What's wrong is showing preference to others because of the way they look or what maybe they can offer you. Let me share the story of Tim Howard. When I met Tim Howard, he was already a leader at Heritage Church, a church I went to right after college to serve on staff. I was surprised to find out that when, when Tim visited that church for the first time, um, he, he wasn't looked upon as leadership material. In fact, as I spoke to Tim myself, and he's, a, he, he's quite an amazing person, but he said, when I first went to that church, I have to be honest, I was quiet and awkward. That was his words about himself. Quiet and awkward. He got involved received Christ as Lord and Savior. And eventually, uh, God used him to create an evangelism strategy that Heritage used to reach hundreds of people to Christ. That's what Tim did. In fact, today, Tim leads an international ministry he created to set people free from, from spiritual and emotional bondage. An amazing ministry. And I'm so thankful that Heritage's lead pastor, John, did not let his first impressions of Tim. Because I asked, I said, what was your first impressions of Tim? He said he was quiet and awkward. <laughs> but I'm thankful he didn't allow his first impressions of Tim to keep him from allowing God to do what God wanted to do in Tim's life. And in some ways, James would look at that story and he would say, see, many a place wants to look and say, well, that's a polished person. And we're gravitated to the easy, polished people. And he says, well, what about those who are diamonds in the rough? What about those individuals like King David, by the way? You may remember the account from the Old Testament. The prophet's going to anoint a king out of Jesse's household. And Jesse brings all of his sons, but as young as David. I mean, we, we sort of have to read into what's happening here, but you can see that his dad going, well, certainly he's going to pick one of my older boys. We'll just keep David out to where he's really good and let him shepherd the sheep. And the prophet comes and goes to the oldest, the, this, this individual, and says, this has to be the one. And God says, he's not the one. Goes down the whole line. And then finally he says to Jesse, he says, do you not have any other sons? Because God's not choosing any of these. He says, well, I got one. My youngest is out in the field. He goes, we better go get him. David comes in, and God says, he's the one. He's a man after my own heart. See, we, we sometimes can use our own preference to say, well, that's going to be the person God uses. Oh, that person's really gifted. God's going to use them. And yet what I have found is God uses people who place themselves in his hands, not necessarily those who seem to have it all together. In fact, when you read the scripture, many of them didn't have anything together until they came to God. And that God used them in great ways. God shows no partiality and neither should we. So James offers this further explanation. Look at verses 5 through 7. He writes, listen, my beloved brothers. I want to pause there just for a second. He's not poking fun. He means I love you to these brothers. 
See, listen here, those who I love. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who loved him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blast me the honorable name of which you've been called? we got to understand this in context. Remember who James is writing to. He's writing to the believers who've been scattered across the Roman Empire because they're followers of Jesus Christ. And guess who are the people who were persecuting them? It wasn't the poor and the powerless. It was the rich and those of position. And, and so he's saying, do you not realize that the people who you're now treating with, with this preference were the same ones that, that took everything you had and scattered you throughout the empire? This seems a little ridiculous to me, James is saying. But let's be careful. We must be careful to realize James isn't asking them to discriminate against the rich. That's not his point. Because that would be equally sinful. He's just simply saying, don't show preference to one over the other. See, true value in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with bank accounts. Nothing to do with gold rings or fine clothing. In fact, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't even seek after these things. God will meet your needs. Seek after the kingdom of God in his Righteousness, God's economy. The truly rich in the kingdom of God aren't those who have fine clothing, costly jewelry, or great possessions, but are those who are spiritually rich, laying up treasures in heaven that will last for eternity. It amazes me as we read scripture. In fact, Paul in, in Romans, he says, when God looks down from heaven, he only sees two groups of people. Isn't that Interesting. Like he doesn't care what, what the hue of your skin is. He doesn't care what your pedigree is. He, he doesn't determine who you are by what you've done. He, he, except for one decision. He says he looks down from heaven. He sees people who are in Christ, his children, because they've chosen to follow Jesus. And he sees those who aren't following Jesus. He calls them in Adam. And he's pursuing them so that they will follow Jesus. Only two people. One of my least favorite questions to fill out on a form is what race are you? Because I want to cross it out and put human. Because that's how God sees the world. One race, one people. Only separated by whether we've received Christ or not. So he says, show no partiality. You're, you're, you're like all part of the same crew. And so Jesus teaches us not to put down James teaches not to put down a person simply because of what they have or don't have. In fact, James 2.5, God chose those who are poor in the world to be rich in their faith and heirs of the kingdom. The theme that comes over and over again in James' writing. Again, James isn't placing the rich over the poor, the poor over the rich. He's saying just treat everyone equal. Treat everyone with equal love. The whole entire passage is wrapped up in the very first verse we read. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Those who follow Jesus as Lord are to avoid partiality toward the rich and the poor and everyone else. Here's the simple truth. Showing partiality is sin. And sin always brings spiritual death. And in this case, it's a death of, a, of an intimate relationship with another. An interpersonal relationship. 
If, if John, the lead pastor at Heritage, had showed partiality against him, Tim probably would never have flourished to be the leader he is and, and the man of God he is and, and his family who serve Christ. His son is actually a pastor on staff at that same church today. That's what God does. Because God shows no partiality. He says, come to me as you are and see if I don't fill you with my love and transform your life. I love the truth of the gospel. He accepts everyone where they're at, but he says to them, don't expect to remain there. Isn't that true? Come to Christ as you are, but don't expect to remain there because you're going to be filled with the very spirit of God and he's going to transform your life if you're a believer. He's only limited by the limits we place on him because he's limitless. And love is key to overcoming partiality. I was thinking about this. Love is key to overcoming partiality because when you love everyone, you're always at eye level with them. If you're simply expressing love to someone, you're not saying that they're higher than you or lower than you. They're just eye level with you. We're all in the same playing field with God and with each other. I thought of the words my dad told me over and over again growing up and I found out later that it was his mom who had shared it with him. My dad was, poor, was, was raised in some of the most modest means. They didn't have hardly anything. And my grandmother would say to him, and he would say to me, he would say, listen, there's no one in the world better than you. Then he would say, but you're not better than anyone else. Catch that? No one in the world better than you, but you're not better than anyone else. That's the heart of God. Sometimes we're quick to look at others and think, man, if they could just be like me, what a great world it would be. God help us all. Or we think of ourselves, man, if I could just be, no, you just be who God's created you to be and trust him to do a work in your life and just see what he can do. If we believe in the Lord, we should believe in those who he believes in and he believes in you. He believes in the people outside the walls of this church to come to him and grow in him and be used by him. And the church should be the one institution where all are treated equally, all are loved. I love what Paul writes, Galatians 3.28. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's good stuff. If you've never said amen out loud, that's a good verse to say it to. We're all one in Christ. And this is the good news of those of us who have experienced Jesus Christ. We understand his love. We understand the ability to love others through him. And, and really, I just want to share really quickly three points to align with Christ and avoiding partiality. How do we do that? How do we, how do we avoid partiality and align with Christ? The first is think of Jesus as the true glory. Jesus is our example. I mean, what did he do? He, he humbled himself. He left the splendor of heaven to come to earth. He, he humbled himself by placing on his, divi his divinity, humanity, and walking among us. And he hung out with the least and the worst and, and showed love to all. And here's a key question then. If our faith rests in him, how should we reflect him in our relationship with others? How do we express his glory to those around us? Second thing. Think of God's economy. I, I love it. I mean, Jesus came and he says, okay, this is what the world teaches. And he turns it upside down. He, he says, in God's economy, the poor are rich. <laughs> Think about it. The last is first and the first is last. The, the true leader is a servant. 
<laughs> Jesus says, everything you thought is wrong. This is what God's economy looks like. When you think about God's economy, then how can we not love everyone equally? And then thirdly, think of your new position in Christ. Those of us in Christ were spiritually bankrupt before we came to Christ. It didn't matter what our bank account said. We were spiritually bankrupt. Like we needed something. We needed him. We were enriched in our faith when we received Christ as Lord and Savior. And believers have been granted this amazing love and relationship with God where he fills us, he blesses us so we can bless others in his name. So we can be everyday missionaries in the everyday places where we what? Where we, where we live, where we work, where we go to school, where we play. In fact, the world's dying to see the glory of God on display. And every single day we have the ability to allow him to use us to do that. To bring a piece of heaven into the places where we walk. The crucial question we really must answer is this. In what way will the family likeness of our Father God be reflected through us? What way? May it begin with love. May it begin with impartiality. When I pastored in Wisconsin, and I actually have some Wisconsinites here this morning, my grandsons, grandparents. Great to have them here with me, their family. When I pastored in Wisconsin, our campus was a converted storefront. It was right down in between a bunch of bars. And, and on a Saturday night, it wasn't unusual occasionally for someone to think we were a bar and to sort of walk in and find out really quickly weren't. We knew who most of those were because they left very quickly. But one particular Saturday night, a man wandered in drunk. It was in the middle of service. In fact, I'd already started preaching. And he came in, and he sat on the front row. Two of the individuals from church, two guys, they, they saw what was happening and they came and sat on either side of him, I guess, to make sure everything was going to be okay. And he was quiet enough, stayed awake even, but he was drunk on the front row as I preached. That night as he got ready to leave, one of the guys sitting next to him took one of our church cards and placed it in his pocket, not knowing if the guy would ever care or do anything about it. But the next day, to my surprise, the guy who was drunk the night before came in, this time sober, didn't sit in the front, he sat in the back. Guess you gotta be drunk to sit in the front, I don't know, but, <laughs> but he, he sat in the back, just a thought. <laughs> and after service, he went up to one of the staff pastors, one of the people I had the privilege of serving with, and he said to him, he said, he said I, I came last night, you might have saw me, I, I was drunk. <laughs> He said, when I woke up this morning, he said, I reached in my pocket and, and found this card and realized what I had done. He said, and I just, he said, I just had to come back to the church who would love a drunk person like that. I was thinking about his words and it reminds me of an old hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Love, God's love. It's powerful, it's transforming. It breaks divides. It shows a drunk that he's not a drunk. <laughs> he just happened to be drunk. But he's a precious child of God. 
Beyond a doubt, we learn from James that we should avoid partiality, that we should embrace God's love and show God's love to those around us. And I just ask you this morning, first of all, have you received God's love? Have you received God's love? You say, Craig, you don't know what I've done. God does, and he's still wooing you. He's still calling you unto himself. And if you've yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, I just want to encourage you, perhaps this morning is your time, in the quietness of your heart, say yes to Jesus. And for those of us who are walking with Christ, maybe you made that decision weeks, months, years ago. What's God calling you to do? What's your next step that God's calling you to take? And I just want to encourage you, you'll never regret taking the step that God calls you to take with him. Right, church? Whatever it is. And may we, May we as crosswinds, a small part of God's big family, may we as crosswinds, not just as people walk on this campus, not just as people watch us online, but everywhere we go, may the love of God flow through us that they too will know salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your profound love that you offer to each and every one of us. You express it to us and it's through your love, the scripture tells us, that we're drawn to repentance, we're drawn into a relationship with you and perhaps even this morning or whenever someone's even watching and participating in this service throughout the week, perhaps at this moment, you're calling into that relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for dying for our sins, being resurrected for our salvation, for giving us this amazing ability to be a part of your family. And Lord, the, the word's very clear that if just one person has made that decision, there is, a, there is a party going on in heaven on their behalf. God, I pray that, that this morning there's, there's a huge party going on because people have chosen to serve you. Father God, help us understand your love in such a way, may, may, we, may we understand what your glory really means, that shorthand that, that talks about your character and your love and your mission. So that not only do we understand it, that we would be people who are not just talkers of your love, but we're walking in it, expressing it to those around us. And God, whatever that next step you're calling us to take, may we take it in your name. May we take it boldly, believing that you have something for us fill us and bless us to be a blessing. That as we've gathered here this morning and as you've blessed this gathering, I pray you bless our scattering. As we scatter throughout this region, may we be your hands and feet and mouthpiece. May people see Jesus in us. May we reflect the Father well. Lord, I understand we're all works in progress and our reflection isn't perfect, but Lord, thank you for continuing to perfect us, for molding us. Lord, most of all, thank you for loving us first, for loving us completely. (laughs) That changes everything. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.